0: Right, thank you Miss Rowena. Good reminder here this morning. As you turn in your Bible today, you can join me in John chapter 4. We took a little brief hiatus last week from the Gospel of John. We'll return back today and hopefully, Lord willing, finish up the rest of what the chapter has for us. We'll be starting in verse 46. As you find your place today, I want to preach to you on this thought. The longest walk... The Appalachian Trail is one of America's greatest challenges for adventure seekers. I know a little bit about that. I've hiked the North Carolina-Tennessee portion of the App Trail, and it is not for the faint of heart. The trail itself stretches 2,190 miles from Georgia to Maine. And along the way, hikers must endure the elements, sleep on the ground, forge streams, manage supplies, and avoid the wildlife. And by the way, be careful if you stay in the shelters along the way. Uh, there are rats big enough uh, to carry you off. I've only actually known one person who's completed the app Trail. And he was a strapping young man. Which makes Bill Irwin's feet that much more amazing. Listen to this. In 1990, Bill Irwin became the first blind man to hike the trail from start to finish. Now, I have trouble crossing my kitchen at night without stubbing my toe. And yet, this guy hiked almost 2,200 miles, no sight. He was 50 years old, a recovering alcoholic, and a committed Christian. His mantra became 2 Corinthians 5, 7, For we walk by faith, not by sight. He didn't have GPS. He did not use a map, obviously nor was a compass of any use to him. However, he did take his trusty German shepherd as a guide. Erwin estimated that along the way he fell more than 5,000 times, which, if you do the math, translates to 20 times a day for eight months. Somebody has said that the Christian life is falling down, getting up, falling down, getting up, and falling down, getting up all the way to heaven. Along the way he battled hypothermia, One of those falls, he cracked his ribs, he skinned his knees and elbows, but in the end, he made it by faith. When he arrived at the trail terminus, Maine's Mount Katahdin, he was greeted by 15 people from his home church in Burlington, North Carolina, who celebrated his accomplishment by singing Amazing Grace. When asked why he did it, Bill Irwin told the reporter, I hiked the trail not just to show what a handicapped person could do, but I wanted people to see what God can do through a weak person. God guided me and provided for me every step of the way. The Appalachian Trail, if you've been on it, you know it has a nickname. It's called the Longest Walk. And Bill Irwin's story got me thinking about this nobleman that we meet in John chapter 4 who hiked about 20 miles from Cana to Capernaum. Just as Bill Irwin walked by faith, somewhere between Cana and Capernaum, this nobleman learned how to do the same. There's the map you can see. Cana, the place where Jesus turned the water into wine in John chapter 2, and Capernaum, which was close to Jesus' hometown there in Nazareth. As we'll see soon, later on, The distance from the healer to this man's home was the longest walk he'd ever made. Now, if you uh, ever had to walk a long road from offered prayer to answered prayer, from desperation to celebration, if you've walked that road from crisis to catharsis, then you know how grueling each mile can be. It can be hard just to wake up one day and put another foot in front of the other. But what I find in the nobleman's journey is a trek that's a lot like ours, where we're required to walk by faith and not by sight. And in the message today, I want us to journey along with this nobleman in John chapter 4, and I want us to watch how Jesus' second sign miracle develops this man's faith. If you're here today, it's because you have not arrived yet. God's still working on you. You still can grow in your faith, amen? And I think this nobleman's journey has a lot to teach us about how we can do that. And many of you are going to be able to relate to this man's experience because I know, I've heard your stories, I've gathered with you in prayer, you're on this long walk, you're on this journey, and you're wondering, how am I going to get through Well, this story teaches us much today. Number one, notice with me what I call the testing of shallow faith. The testing of shallow faith. We'll begin reading in verse 46. So he, speaking of Jesus, came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And so Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As I think about the personality of this nobleman, the Bible doesn't give us a lot to go on, but here's a guy that was used to being in control. He's accustomed to giving orders. He had many servants under him. He lived in the lap of luxury. He enjoyed the benefits that came with power and money. But now, for the first time in his life, he's found himself in a situation where it's totally out of his control. And he discovers, as his son grows ill, that none of his credentials can help him in this crisis. The icy hand of death had a firm grip around his son. And I don't care who you are, that's a parent's worst nightmare. Any parent who loves their child would give their right arm or give their very life for their own flesh and blood just to see them healed. If you've ever knelt beside the bedside of a feverish child or you had to wait for medicine or whatever the case might be and that child is sick, you know as a parent, nothing tears your heart up more than that. And coincidentally, nothing else will cause you to pray more than that. And as this nobleman approaches Jesus, I want you to see that he starts off with shallow faith. But the way that Jesus ministers to him is going to grow this man's faith. And by the time he makes that longest walk home, he's a different man. Notice initially how I think our text shows us three kinds of inferior faith. What do I mean by that? Well, first... There's what I call second-hand faith. Second-hand faith. Notice in verse 47, the Bible says that he came to Jesus when he heard that he had come from Judea to Galilee. You see, everything that this man knew about Jesus initially came second-hand. He'd heard stories about Jesus, wonder, working power. And I'm sure as the fame and the notoriety of Jesus spread from that first sign miracle, it got to the ears of this nobleman and the wheels began turning in his head as he saw that his son wasn't getting better. Huh, you know, if this Jesus can turn water into wine, then maybe he can cure my son's fever. Had that been you or I, we would have done the very same thing. But he starts off with second-hand faith. And listen to me, friend. Second-hand faith isn't saving faith. You can't get into heaven on your mama's faith, or your pastor's faith, or your spouse's faith, like the old saying goes, God has only children, not grandchildren. And at some point, listen to me, a young person, listen to me, uh, those who are coming to church not knowing a lot about Jesus today, at some point in your life, the Jesus that you've heard about from your parents, or from your preacher, or from your friend, has to be investigated personally, and He has to become your Jesus. You can't live on second-hand faith. I was thinking this week, there are some things you don't want second-hand. I don't want a toothbrush that's a hand-me-down, do you? I'm not going to Goodwill to shop for second-hand underwear. I'm sorry, I'm going to draw the line somewhere. If you're a soldier jumping out of an airplane, you don't want a second-hand parachute, right? And we always used to joke as kids about ABC gum already being chewed. You don't want second-rate, second-hand chewing gum, do you? And friend, I'll tell you something else you don't want. You don't want somebody else's idea of who Jesus is. Second-hand faith is believing in Jesus, but first-hand faith is believing on Jesus. There's a huge difference. Second-hand faith, believing in. That's head knowledge. That's what you might read, what you might hear, what somebody else might tell you. It's intellectual. But first-hand faith is believing on Jesus. There's a very big difference there. That's heart knowledge. That's experiential. I've tested. I've tried. I know him. As David said, the Lord is my shepherd. Amen? Look at the drawing there, the picture of the footbridge. Think of crossing a rushing river on a footbridge. You can believe in the bridge from a distance and see that it might be sturdy. But to believe on the bridge, you must actually apply all your weight to it. Some of you have believed in Jesus all your life, but you've never really believed on Jesus. And there's a difference. Do you have second-hand faith today? That's where this guy started out. Then there's also something here. I want you to see there's what I would call situational faith. That's another kind of weak faith. Situational faith. Look what he said in verse 49. Sir, come down before my child dies. Notice that what initially drove this man to Jesus is what you might call crisis faith or foxhole faith. There are many people who will never give God a second thought until disease or disaster, or debt, or death, turn their lives upside down. And thus the saying, you don't find too many atheists in foxholes. There aren't many skeptics in the emergency room. All of a sudden, when the bottom falls out of our life, we need to run to somebody who's got help. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, he said this. He said, quote, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. And that's where this nobleman was. He started off with second-hand faith. He'd heard things about Jesus, but then he had situational faith. All of a sudden, the bottom dropped out of his life, and he found a need in his life that he could not meet with his money or his power. No doctor could solve the issue going on with his son, and so he sought out Jesus. This episode reminded me of a, an old Methodist circuit-riding preacher from America's past. His name was Robert Sheffy. If you ever get a chance to read about his life, very interesting character. But he started preaching in 1839, way before interstate highways. I mean, the only way was on the back of a horse or a mule. And this preacher made his way through the hills and hollers of the Appalachians. West Virginia and Virginia and North Carolina and so on, Tennessee. He was an unorthodox fella. The way he preached and the way that he prayed brought many to Christ, but he gained the nickname of, listen to this, the peculiar preacher. Listen to what happened one time when he was called to a cabin in Virginia's Wolf Creek. He had been there before, and he'd previously tried to win a a family to Christ, but they were not interested. They shut him out and said, "Uh, we're not interested in hearing about your Bible. But he was called back again to that house a second time, and as he rode up, he noticed that things were different. You see, the patriarch of the family had been bitten by a rattlesnake. (laughs) There was little hope that the man would live. Entering the house, Sheffy sank to his knees beside the bed of the dying man, and here's what he prayed. O Lord, we do thank Thee for rattlesnakes. Had it not been for a rattlesnake, they would not have called upon You. God, we give You praise for the rattlesnakes in our lives. He prayed on the man, and amazingly, He made it through the night the man lived, and Robert Sheffy in his journal said that the whole family believed on Jesus Christ. It's been said that weak faith is like sidewalk chalk. It works when the sun shines, but it washes away when the rain falls. Some of us have a life built on situational sidewalk chalk faith. I've known a few folks like this whose faith is determined by the situation. It's determined by the circumstances. When there's plenty of money in the bank, when they're healthy, God takes a back seat when it's summertime and there's ball games to be played and lakes to be swam in and places to go, you won't see them darken the door of a church. But when life goes haywire, when a child gets sick, when the money runs out, when suddenly things are falling on hard times, they got the preacher on speed dial. I've been there. But a faith that can't be tested is a faith that can't be trusted situational faith, and then there's secondhand faith, but then there's also something else in this text where Jesus is testing the, the weak faith here. There's what I call sign-seeking faith. And we read about it in verse 48. Look at what Jesus says here. So Jesus said to him, unless you see the signs and wonders, you will not believe. Boy, you didn't see that one coming after this man has literally begged Jesus to come down his town jesus kind of gives this one-liner here now remember jesus is in cana the place where he'd already turned water into wine and so his fame his notoriety had spread the people there had developed a dependency upon signs and wonders as they always do Old Testament or New Testament And so Jesus sensed that the people there Viewed his miracle working power As something of a carnival sideshow As like a free meal ticket They weren't really interested in Christ They just wanted to see the next thing That he was going to do Sign-seeking faith lives and dies by this creed Seeing is believing Sign-seeking faith goes like this I'll believe God when, dot, 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 you fill in the blank. I'll believe God if, and then we put a conditional on it. In other words, the crowds followed Jesus for the wrong reason. They cared more about the miracles than they did about the Messiah and His message. And another thing that sign-seeking faith is bad for is it's bad for putting God in a box where we try and make Him play by our rules. That's why the nobleman assumes, Jesus, you've got to come with me. You have to be physically present there. There has to be some kind of contact in order for you to heal my boy. And you know what? As I begin to think about this story, if Jesus had gone along with this man's request this guy would have learned nothing about faith. Because here's an interesting paradox that I see in the Scripture. I wrote this down in my notes this week. Faith may produce miracles, but miracles don't always produce faith. Is that not true? Hello, the Pharisees and so many others who are around Jesus. We see that faith can can move mountains. Yes, uh, faith can initiate great ways that God can move on our behalf but even the Pharisees and even those who are around Jesus saw the miracle and there were many who denied that he was the son of God how often are we like this nobleman friends we come to Jesus with our request and we tell him how we think he ought to answer the prayer (laughs) how many of us are like the crowd we're really only there because we're interested in the blessing and not the blesser This is just one reason why God allows our faith to be tested either by suffering or by the wrestling match of prayer because, listen to this, God cares more about teaching us to trust Him in a new way than He does about confirming some kind of small idea or bias of who we think He is. Now notice, this man starts out with imperfect faith. But Jesus didn't cast him aside. You can come to God with imperfect faith in a perfect God. Amen? It's not about where you start, it's how you finish. And Jesus ministers to this man as he tests his faith. That's number one. The test, the test, number one, of shallow faith. But then I want you to see number two this morning, the trust of strong faith. Hang on with me, it's about to get exciting. The trust of strong faith. Verse 49. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. The nobleman finally discovers he's at a crossroads. He can either stay or he can obey. And friend, you're going to find yourself at that crossword uh, at some point in your life. Stay or obey. There's some of us who have, who have stayed spiritually. We haven't really grown much. We haven't obeyed the Lord. We haven't gone anywhere. And, and God has told us to go, and there's more that He wants to show us, but we've stayed and not obeyed. How many of you, probably myself included, who would have turned to Jesus at this moment and said, Hey, hey look, Jesus, uh, I've come a long way just to see you. And uh, I can't go home empty-handed. You've got to come with me. (laughs) Uh, Did I mention my wife is a really good cook? And if you come, we'll make sure that you're taken care of. Hey, I've got an entourage who will take you wherever you want to go after you're done. but, But you've got to come with me. And Instead, what we read, the Bible says that this man went on his way. He turned down the road to Capernaum and he left hanging on to a promise of God. He made that long walk, oh friend, it was 20 miles, they say, from Canaan to Capernaum. Don't you know that was the longest walk? He left from Jesus' presence empty-handed. But I'm telling you that God did something in the heart and in the life of this man such that he went from shallow crisis faith to a strong, confident faith. Believe it or not, listen to me, friend. I know this may upset your apple cart, but believe it or not, the best thing for this nobleman at this moment was for Jesus to send him away empty-handed. Because if Jesus had went with him, this man would have never really learned to trust. Nobody wants to walk the long road, but sometimes, listen, the only way that God can teach us to trust His promises is even when we don't feel His presence. If you've been there before, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've walked that long road from offered prayer to answered prayer. You've walked that long road from suffering to healing. You've walked that long road with a prodigal child who's not yet returned home. You've walked that long road from one transition in your life, one job in your life, one move in your life to another. And you're thinking, God, where are you? I can't feel you. God, you're not with me. God... You've sent me away to be by myself. But you know, by waiting for my prayer to be answered, I learned to trust His timing. That He's got better timing than I do. By walking in uncharted territory, I learn to discern His voice. All of a sudden, when life is stripped down and it gets down to the brass tacks, all of a sudden, I have ears to hear His voice where I've been distracted before. By obeying God when it doesn't make sense... I learned that His vision is better than mine. He can see further down the road than I can. He knows the end from the beginning and everything in between. And if I obey even when it doesn't make sense, I find out that God's vision is better than mine. By going forward when the future is uncertain, I learned this very important thing, that His Word is enough. His Word is enough. I don't need another sign I don't need God to move in another way. I just need to trust in the Word that's already been spoken, already been written down. I know He's heard my prayer. I know that He will meet my need. I just have to hang on to it and go forward. John Ortberg has a great insight here. Listen to what he said. He said, quote, As long as you have faith, you will have doubts. Faith is required only when we have doubts. And, When we don't know for sure but it's the risk of uncertainty that's a form of suffering which produces character. There are times when God asks us to put 100% commitment into something without 100% certainty. When we can live in that uncertainty with courage and trust, that's when we will change and our faith will grow. There's some things you can only learn about God on the longest walk. You can't learn it in a church pew. You can't learn it when you're fat and happy. You can't learn it when there's plenty of money in the bank account and everything's going your way. You got to take the longest walk. I've got a cousin named Jordan. He's uh, worked for several years for the power company. He's with Duke Power Company now, and he's a lineman. He's been that in that job for a while. He gets to travel all over the country sometimes, and when there's a storm or when there's a blizzard somewhere or a hurricane, he goes and he he works on the lines, the power lines. And one day I asked him, I said, Jordan, I said, how is it that, that, that you got over the fear of climbing up one of them poles? Because I don't know about you, but <laughs> you be a praying man once you start to climb that power pole and you get up there near the top. And one day I was with Jordan and he, he pulled out his... Uh, His harness gear, kind of like what is pictured here. It's this belt. It's kind of this uh, leather strap that wraps around his legs and his body. I said, Jordan, how did you ever overcome the fear of climbing up? I mean, when you're up there and the wind's blowing and the, the snow's flying and it's raining. I said, that takes a lot of faith. Here's what he told me. He says, I had to learn to trust to do what was opposite to me. He said, you have to learn how to do the opposite of what your instinct tells you to do. He said, when you climb a pole, your natural inclination is to bear hug it, to hold on for dear life. But he says, you can't do that if you want your hands free to work. He said, when you put that climbing gear on, he said, you have to lean back into it. He says, it feels like you're going to fall. He said, but if you don't put all your weight back on that strap... He said, you'll never learn how to do the job the right way. And he actually said, the, the more that you lean back into that strap, the more secure that you are going to be. And as I begin to think about that, I think that's a great illustration of faith. When we come to those moments where it's hard to trust in the Word of God, when the promises of God don't seem to materialize, friend, that's when you have to lean back into those Uh, more than you ever have before. You can rest all your weight on the promises of God and trust in Him and find out there's never been a promise that He's broken. He knows how to meet your need. He knows how to get you from Cana to Capernaum. He knows how to get you to your healing, to your miracle, to your destination. Somebody tell me, in the house of God, do you believe it today? It's in those in-between times where we lean back on God's promises and we learn something about His power and something about His provision. And faith is trusting in the promises of God even when you don't feel the presence of God. This guy didn't have the hand of Jesus to clasp onto as he walked down that longest road. And friend, you'll be in that situation at some point in your life. Faith is acting like something is so even when it's not so in order that it might be so because God said so and when you cannot trace the hand of God you can trust the heart of God so I want you to see number one the testing of shallow faith and then number two we saw the, excuse me we saw the trust of strong faith but then number three I want you to see the testimony of saving faith Look what verse 51 says. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him <laughs> his son was recovering. And so he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, underline it in your Bible, child of God, yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. And the father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son, your son. We'll live. And he himself believed in all his household. And this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he come from Judea to Galilee. Oh, there was good news that met the nobleman. Had you have liked to have been walking alongside of him and they see the servants coming out of the house, meeting him halfway down the road. There was good news. There was shouting. There was rejoicing. And the good news was met by a good question. The nobleman said, Tell me. About what hour did my son start to recover? And the word that sticks out in my mind from that text, you saw it there, the word is yesterday. Amen? Yesterday, that means that during his journey home, listen to me, that man stopped, slept, presumably, and spent the night somewhere. That means that as this nobleman sat there on that street, And he started to count the hours back on his hand. Oh, the seventh hour, and he's going back in time. That's the exact hour that I met with Jesus. And yet this guy, the Bible says that he believed the Word and went upon his way. He was such at rest in the Word of God that he found enough peace to stop somewhere overnight, take a rest, and pick up his journey the next day. In other words, he wasn't in a hurry because he'd met with the Master. He'd gotten his Word, and it was sure. It was a done deal. Friend, that's faith. That's faith when you can take all your burdens, all your problems and cares, and lay them at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, you take over now. You've got the night shift. I'm going to bed. Praise God for a God who can meet you in your need. Somebody said that a promise of God is an island of calm in a sea of chaos. Sometimes the world looks upon the child of God. And they can be walking that longest mile. Their life's all gone upside down. Nothing's working out. There's sickness and there's grief. And there's trial and tribulation. And the world can look upon that child of God and say, I don't understand it. I don't know how you do it. How do you keep believing? How do you keep praying? Why do you keep going to church? It doesn't seem like there's any answers in your life. Because I'm holding on to a promise of God it's an island of calm in a sea of chaos. I can't explain the peace that passes all understanding, but I know that I can pillow my head at night and rest because He's got it under control and He's given me His word. And when the Father gets to Capernaum, He makes this wonderful discovery. Oh, don't miss this. The presence and the power of Christ had gone ahead of Him. He only thought that He'd walk that long road alone. And yet, what he discovered when he got home was that God already sent ahead the healing. Jesus already called the miracle into being. And he just had to take a night and a few steps down the road to catch up with his miracle. But it was already done the hour that Jesus had spoken it. Somebody said that faith is taking all your eggs and putting them in God's basket and counting your blessings even before they hatch. <laughs> That's what this fella did. He hung it all on the promise of Jesus and went down the road. I have witnessed God go ahead into my future and do things on my behalf. Have you noticed that, child of God, in your life? I've preached and found that God has already gone ahead and worked in the hearts of people before the message. And when they come down to the altar, it's it's low-hanging fruit. They're ready to be saved. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's gone ahead of me and prepared the soil so that when it's sown... It's good soil. I've wondered many times, God, how are you are going to meet the need? And then I just keep plodding and keep walking only to discover that there's His provision right there in the middle of the wilderness waiting for me to get there and discover that He has gone ahead. I have needed a door to be opened. I've needed a mountain to be moved. Like those women, when they got up on Resurrection Sunday, they said, Who's going to roll the stone away? And yet, when they got there, they found out it, the mouth of that cave was already open. The stone had already been removed. I've wondered, Lord, how are you going to open this door? God, how are you going to move this mountain? And then, when I get there, I find He's already worked on my behalf. He's gone into my future and rearranged things so that it'll be ready when I get there. Oh, friend, I'm telling you about the testimony of saving faith. What about you? Some of you are wondering today because you're on that long road from Cana to Capernaum. You're wondering today, and it doesn't appear that God has answered your prayer the way that he, you thought He would. You're doing your best this morning to put one foot in front of the other and, and just to save face and, and go on the path of obedience, but you're finding it hard to believe. You know how you get your answer? There's no silver bullet secret. You do what this nobleman did, you just keep walking, you just keep obeying, you just keep believing, you just keep serving him and friend the only way that this nobleman knew if he was going to get his answer or not was he had just had to keep walking. You just keep walking with the Lord. Keep going forward by faith. If you haven't got that prayer answered yet, if you haven't seen that lost person saved, if you haven't seen that God make the breakthrough yet, then friend, listen to me. Just keep walking because you haven't caught up with the miracle yet. It's on further down the road. What does the old song say? Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey and when you do that that's how you will see God turn your test into a testimony Gustin said it like this he said faith is to believe what we do not see and the reward of faith is to see what we believe friend faith is believing in advance for what will only make sense in reverse And when the old woman got back to home and he saw the miracle, it all made sense why God had sent him along the long walk. But you know what? The greatest miracle wasn't the healing of the son. Look at what verse 53 says. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed, and his whole household believed. This nobleman didn't come to Jesus initially for salvation, did he? But what changed? Something changed along the long walk. He went from Christ's faith to saving faith. And in the end, notice this, God wrought a greater miracle than the one that was originally sought. He does more than we can think or imagine. He goes above and beyond. He gets it to where we're drinking from our saucer friend. This son was brought to the point of death so that the whole family could be brought to eternal life. And once again, notice this, God used the worst thing to bring about the best thing. Friend, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what battle you're facing or what addiction you're fighting or what problem has beset you. I don't know what pain has wracked your body or what fear you're succumbing to today. But friend, if it is that thing that brings you to Jesus Christ, it's not a bad thing. God can take a bad thing and turn it into the best thing. And so you keep going forward by faith because there's more down the road that God wants to show you. There's more of God that He wants you to see. We think that God is behind us or that God has abandoned us. But friend, God has already gone ahead with His presence and with His power. You just got to keep walking a little bit further down the road. The testimony of saving faith. Friend, every trial is a chance for God to give you a triumph. Every pain God works for our gain. Every setback is a setup for a greater blessing. That adversity that you think is going to destroy you is the thing God is going to use to deliver you. That problem that's in your way is actually going to be the pathway that God uses to bring you the, to the other side. The God who leads you in is the God who will lead you on. In 1949, there was a couple named John and Elaine Beekman. They headed into the jungles of Mexico to reach the Chol Indians with the gospel. The Chol were a primitive people who were controlled by witch doctors and their pagan religion. They wrote about in their book, Peril by Choice, one of the greatest challenges to their ministry was an outbreak of a mysterious plague among the Chol village. The problems the Beekman had was convincing many of the superstitious Cho to let them care for their sick children. The Cho had more faith in their witch doctors than in Christ or modern medicine. And John Beekman, in his book, he recalled that a breakthrough occurred when the son of the Indian chief finally caught the mysterious fever. The parents took their boy to the local witch doctor. But none of his bizarre rituals or strange medicine could help the boy get better. The boy only got worse. He was near death. And as a last resort, the desperate Indian chief and his wife brought their delirious screaming boy to the hands of John Beekman. John inspected the boy. He gave him a shot of penicillin and then he laid his hands on the young one. And he began to pray. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray for God's anointing and God's healing power. And he said in his book, the boy miraculously calmed and so did the parents. The look on their face was a sight. He said, I'll never forget it was like the Holy Spirit had come over them. He said it was an excellent opportunity to tell them about the great physician and the blood of Jesus Christ which saves Three days later, he said, the boy was up running around, playing, and news of the healing had spread like wildfire, and more of the chol began to bring their sick children to the Beekmans, and when the epidemic was over, the witch doctor had lost 37 patients, but the Beekmans had lost none. And that crisis, he said, gave them an opportunity to preach Christ to this pagan Indian people, and a whole revival broke out among them. These folks, thank God that the great physician still makes house calls today. Amen. Thank God for the longest walk. We don't want to go down that road, but when we get to the end of it, we look back and we think, I see now, Lord, why you did what you did. And when you can thank God on the mountain and thank God in the valley, that's when you've learned the test of faith.